My guest today is Uma Naidu, who founded and directed the first and only hospital-based program in nutritional lifestyle and metabolic psychiatry, and is Director of Nutritional and Psychiatry Service at Massachusetts General Hospital in the U.S. and serves on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. Her books, Your Brain on Food and the Food Mood Connection, are bestsellers in the U.S., and I'm here to focus in on anxiety and her new book out today on how to calm your mind with food. So, Uma, if I can call you that. Of course. Thank you very, very much for coming on my podcast. What got you started? How did you get into nutritional psychiatry? Patrick, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to share a little bit of my background. You know, I think it started in my childhood. I grew up in a large uh, Indian family where my grandmother would kind of babysit me during the day or spend time with me, my grandparents, while my mother was at medical school. But my grandmother would cook fresh vegetables from the garden. I'd help her pluck these. I'd help her prepare something like shell the peas or do something simple because I was very little. Um, and then we'd eat our meals together and uh, to entertain me because I was actually a nursery school, preschool dropout, Patrick, I have to tell you that. So I just refused to go for some reason and I got away with it. I, I just loved my grandparents and I wanted to be with them. So they would entertain me. They'd teach me things like yoga and meditation. And the family had a lot of physicians, but also a couple of Ayurvedic practitioners. So all these influences were in my environment. When I went into residency, in psychiatry, I couldn't understand why we were being taught these very uh, significantly important medications that did save the lives of many of my patients, but also had devastating side effects. But no one, other than checking off the weight or height or those 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 standard measures, no one was talking about, well, are you exercising? What are you eating? What's your diet? What like What's your lifestyle? And I felt this was a significant gap. And when a patient actually took this on with me, kind of yelled at me when I was a very junior resident in training, I had prescribed uh, an SSRI. And he had actually come in to see me already overweight, but he read the side effects. And a week later, he came into my office saying, you know, you caused me to gain all this weight. It's the medication. And he also had in his hand a very large cup in Boston. We love Dunkin' Donuts coffee. It's famous. And he had a massive cup of this, uh, 20 ounces. And I said to him, in part to distract him, what did you put in your coffee? And, you know, I'm happy to talk about the weight, but what did you put in? Of course, it was a quarter or more cup of processed, ultra-processed creamer that had sugar in it. And top of that, he was adding eight to 10 teaspoons of sugar. And I'm not, not much of a calorie counter, but it, I wanted to prove my point very quickly to him. So I showed him how many empty calories he was consuming before his day or even before his day started or he'd eaten breakfast. And his eyes lit up. It was a light, light bulb moment for him. But it showed me the power of interpreting that information. And that really led me down the path of I need to study more of this. I need to be able to interpret this to people. And it became very much a part of how I was practicing until I was given the opportunity to start my clinic at Mass General in nutritional and metabolic psychiatry. Yeah, I'm. we're very interested in Harvard because in, in, in the last uh, couple of years, we've heard of Dr. Chris Palmer. He's very big on us on metabolic approach and Dr. Jo Georgia Eage is big on ketones. Um, and they all seem to have Harvard in their name. So what's happening in the U.S.? Is mainstream 
psychiatry, waking up to nutritional medicine. Uh, I assure you here, we <laughs> will feel fast asleep. I, uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear that you think that, Patrick. I My book came out several years ago. My first book, The Mood Food Connection in, in the UK, also called This Is Your Brain on Food in the US. And it actually made unexpectedly quite a big splash during COVID. Um, in that book published in 2020, I share chapters on different conditions in mental health. And I'm providing this as background to answer your question. Different conditions in mental health, including covering, you know, severe illnesses like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, where using a ketogenic diet uh, can be helpful. But overarching this, the metabolic approach has become increasingly important in psychiatry. So putting it together, um, what, what, if I were to take a step back, um, a lot of my work led to media appearances and media appearances, one that went viral in the Wall Street Journal back in 2017, 2018 is what led to me writing a book. Um, and the book sort of became a mission around nutrition for mental well-being. And that has spurred us to create educational programming at Mass General. So we also created the first CME-based program in nutritional psychiatry and cooking for mental health professionals through the Mass General Psychiatry Academy. All of that being said, I think there are a younger group of physicians and psychiatrists who are interested in using lifestyle approaches. And slowly but surely, we're trying to get together. Um, I have to acknowledge the hospital that I'm at because they've actually always supported my work. And it wasn't something that anyone was embarrassed about. It was, I was, I was running my clinic alongside everything else. So I feel that the more people like you, me and others get together and message around this, the more this movement can be brought forward globally. We're also building out um, more of a research program now that we're beyond COVID uh, in specific nutritional and metabolic approaches. So I'm excited for everything that's on the horizon. Well, that's great. And let's dive into your book, which, by the way, um, is a very, very readable book. So if you're not into you know, nutritional biochemistry, if it's even your, your, your first time into the world of nutrition and the mind, um, Uma, is a, you're a wonderful writer. You make things very, very clear. And you start you. kind of at the beginning um, with the gut uh, and the importance of the gut and the microbiome and all the bacteria that are within us and the connection also between the gut and the brain which is the vagus nerve and you talk about and i'd like to explore this a bit um two neurotransmitters there are many chemicals of mm -hmm. communication uh, one is mm -hmm. serotonin so-called happy neurotransmitter the other is gaba uh, which which turns off adrenaline and you talk about them being made in the gut so could you say a little bit more about, about that? And also, does the manufacture of these in the gut actually then affect our brain and our body? Because GABA, of course, in relation to anxiety, which we are really mm -hmm. talking about, is, is a major way of switching off a stress reaction, isn't it? It, it is. It is. That's a great question. So, you know, serotonin does play a key role in our, more, uh, in our mood and emotions. 95% of the actual body's serotonin is made in the gut, uh, most of which actually stays in the digestive tract to help the enteric nervous system regulate digestion. So only 1% to 2% of the body's serotonin is produced in the brain. When it comes to 
uh, the neurotransmitter GABA. This is also another central player in modulating uh, the anxiety response, particularly in the, uh, the amygdala, the part of the brain that we uh, is a flashpoint for anxiety. And GABA is also an inhibitory neurotransmitter. And when GABA levels of lo are low, your amygdala can be more reactive, triggering strong rest stress responses that, you know, even when they're not wanted. So your brain is missing an important tool for keeping extreme moods under control, which then drive your anxiety. And GABA has been shown to be produced by certain gut bacteria, including Bifidobacterium adolensis. So a gut imbalance that leads to a shortage of that species means that you're going to be short on GABA in the gut and, um, and the brain and therefore, therefore heighten your anxiety. Now, your question relating to does it get to the brain and what is that relationship between gut neurotransmitters and the ones in the brain? So in addition to the good products uh, of digestion that are formed by those trillions of microbes, they form things like short-chain fatty acids, bile acids. More recent research has shown that the metabolites produced by the gut microbes also include some neurotransmitters like uh, GABA, serotonin, and others. And even more than that, uh, some bacteria encode genes for specific enzymes that can catalyze the conversion of substrates into corresponding neurotransmitters or precursors. So what tends to happen is that the neurotransmitters, let's take GABA and serotonin, don't penetrate the blood-brain barrier. They have to be synthesized in the brain from local mm -hmm. uh, pools of neurotransmitter precursors. And most of those precursor amino acids like tyrosine and tryptophan are derived from our diet. So they enter the blood, are transported across the blood-brain barrier and taken up by corresponding neurotransmitter producing cells. And these precursors are then converted into those functional neurotransmitters that we mentioned, like serotonin and GABA. So there's a, you know, there's, there's, there's all these kind of nuances about how it happens. But I think to convey that the food we're eating is also being produced in that same area that all these other neurotransmitters are being uh, are interacting with the gut microbes and going through different levels of interaction. Yeah, I, I was... Very intrigued by one paper, um, I don't know if you've seen it, which shows that vitamin D uh, will upregulate the production of um, the conversion of tryptophan serotonin in the brain. Yes. Mm -hmm. And decrease it in the gut. And, and, you know, that was quite interesting because, you know, vitamin D, sunlight, which has mm -hmm. more of an effect than just vitamin D, I'm sure, in, in relation mm -hmm. to mood and so on. But it also got me interested because 5-HTP, the form of tryptophan that's most often you know, used in the context of an antidepressant, in some people gives them, uh, you know, gut disturbance. So mm -hmm. so the idea that vitamin D actually turns it down a bit in the gut and up in the brain, I just wonder whether too much serotonin in the gut, um, you know, can also be a problem. I, I think it could be. I think it definitely could be. And I think that the fact that the, when a person is prescribed selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, they often have those first few weeks of gastrointestinal distress and discomfort, mm -hmm. um, which usually subside, but that is also related to the location of uh, the receptors. So I, I, I think there's, that's a very valid, valid question. Mm. Now, later we'll talk about micronutrients, but there's been two studies out now that show that, and this was actually supplementing vitamin C, mm -hmm. also promotes yep. the bifidobacteria. So, you know, we end up with a whole kind of web of, of, of nutrition. 
Now, the next topic it, you go into, yeah. the next yeah. topic you go into is immunity um, and the mind. And you talk about the thing that I think you know so many of us intuitively know that people who are very depressed or anxious, for example, grieving. Uh, you know, can yeah. suppress immunity and, you know, mm -hmm. result in, in autoimmune diseases or, you know, the link between cancer mm -hmm. and state of mind has, you know, has been there for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd like I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and also possibly around the area of um, food allergy or intolerance, because, of course, this is this is the immune system attacking, you know, attacking foods. Uh, right. So I'd like to ask you about that and whether there are any sort of anxious foods you know, that can trigger anxiety in people and uh, whether you explore this in your practice, whether you use any sure. tests and so on. So immunity, sure. anxiety in the mind. What do you sure. Have? So, you know, uh, many people don't realize that the 70% uh, of the immune system is located in the gut. So it's actually a hotbed for a lot of the interactions that are happening. In the book, I break down the different types of immunity, um, innate immunity, um, and adaptive immunity and kind of explain how these respond in your body. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to convey, Patrick, was that the, 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 the word anxiety or the meaning of how it feels to be anxious is not just one thing. A, it's not an above the neck concept. Um, and B, it's related to more than your gut. It's also related to your immune system, your metabolic system and other things. So, here, what I would say is baseline eating healthy whole foods and tweaking your diet in the best direction is going to help you. Do I use testing? I work often with what would be the equivalent of a GP in your system with primary care physicians, allergists, so whatever that patient is coming in with and whatever their concern is, if it's a, a self-reported food allergy, we usually do try to get a testing. And I work in collaboration. I don't necessarily order the test myself uh, because I have a, a sort of a tertiary care clinic, meaning that I work with other clinicians, making sure that they under, under allergy and immunology are getting the tests needed. That being said, what I tend to find is we are moving in the direction of personalized medicine. But with certain individuals, they may not know that they have an allergy. Um, just like they may not know that they have a micronutrient deficiency in a similar way. And often when it's tested, it might show up. Are there anxious foods that drive anxiety? Yes, there's a long list of them. But some of the biggest offenders are the ones that people don't realize are related to anxiety. And two of those are an inflammatory oils, which drive inflammation. And the other one is the added and refined sugars in food that are even in savory foods like tomato sauce, um, you know, store-bought pasta sauces, salad dressings, people don't realize that they're consuming it, even though the labeling may indicate or imply it's healthier. And those uh, really do drive anxiety in a very insidious and ongoing way. So I think that those come up as the, big, as the, as the biggest uh, offenders. Yeah, I had a, a patient back in 1981, Elizabeth. Uh, she was schizophrenic, diagnosed at the age of 15 or 16. And I first met her when she was 22 or 23 and it turned out that she she was she didn't know but she was extremely gluten sensitive eliminated gluten and her, her schizophrenia went and some years later i followed her up about three years later and said how have you been and she's by then by the way she'd she'd actually gone back to school got a degree and had a high-powered job and uh, and a family and was highly functional 
And I and she said, well, I've been fine, but I went crazy for three days um, earlier this year. And I said, what happened? And she said, well, I, I went to a party, had a salad. And it turned out the salad dressing had starch in it. Starch is gluten, wheat. And that was enough just to trigger. So uh, it mm-hmm. is extraordinary that in some people, uh, a food can just, you know, bring on extreme you know, anxiety. And I wanted, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, you may bounce off that, but in your book, you describe a panic attack, which is a very real thing for a lot of people. Um, how do you turn off a panic attack? You know, that's a, that's a tough one, Patrick. And sometimes what I do clinically is prepare my patients who report panic attacks for how they can be in their optimal brain health to have a lower level of panic attacks and how to try their best to switch them off. These are the techniques I use. I always teach or have them learn a a couple, at least one or two breathwork exercises. Mm -hmm. I have them learn and institute a mindfulness practice that works for them. It may not be a formal meditation, may just be thoughts that they feel they can focus on. For some people it's listening to sounds of the ocean or thinking of an image of uh, nature, whatever that might be. I also really encourage ongoing good hydration during the day, always having a sustainable water bottle they're sipping on because dehydration can precipitate both anxiety and as well as panic. So I sort of have them try to be set up for success, also Mm -hmm. making sure that they don't drop their blood sugar, meaning that they're not hypoglycemic uh, for whatever reason, Uh, becomes important managing how they, if they drink alcohol, how and when they drink alcohol, if they drink coffee, how and when they drink coffee, all become important. So if they, you know, happen to have a panic attack, I want them to try that breathwork exercise. Mm -hmm. I want them to consider doing uh, 20 minutes on a treadmill because with some people just engaging in a different form of exercise, listening to their music, getting on that treadmill, whichever machine that they like to use for 10 to 15 minutes can actually break through that angst that they're feeling. And once the endorphins kick in, they actually have a more uplifting feeling and they almost will describe things like burning off that anxiety. And is so there a, those, is there, yeah, is there a yeah, simple sorry. way to describe the breath exercise? You know, is there something that somebody the, can do that is easy to... Sure. So there's several different ones. Um, I I probably will watch describing it, but it's easily available if you you can find a demo of this on YouTube. It's the alternate nostril breathing is one Mm -hmm. of the simplest ways. And uh, research has shown, um, published in 2020, that, you know, the power of pranayama yoga or breathwork yoga. Mm -hmm. um, And what it showed was actually looking at cardiac disease, but it showed that it improved depression and anxiety in these patients. Mm. So it is a powerful tool. I would suggest trying alternate nostril breathing as, as a, a way to get started. There was, I don't know if you know about the dive reflex, but, uh, uh, and it's interesting you mentioned the ocean because uh, I have one yeah. lady had terrible panic attacks. And, yeah. uh, and what stopped her panic attacks is who took a big gulp of air and then put her head underwater in a basin of cold water and just hold her yeah. breath, not trying to break <laughs> any world records. Uh, but actually, that switched off her panic attacks. That's fantastic. I think that yeah. I think that all of these ways, and people do things like, how do they, um, you know, what can they do, like a cold plunge that can tweak the vagus nerve or other mm-hmm. things. So, I, I think that all of those. Sometimes it's an exploration with an individual of what they want to try 
to almost get out of that panic state and, uh, you know, what would work for them. You talk about leptin. Uh, leptin is a hormone. And if you have uh, elevated levels, it reduces your appetite. If you have low levels, it makes you eat. Um, you talk about leptin, the difference between men and women, and also leptin resistance. Uh, so could you explain that a little bit in the context of anxiety as well? Sure. So, you know, leptin is the uh, is the hormone and is the satiety hormone in our body. And what it's basically doing is telling us when to stop eating in, 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 in simplest of terms. It's basically reminding us, hey, you know, Patrick, you've had your dinner and it's uh, time to move on to the next activity or to the uh, or, or to some, um, you know, maybe a meditation or something else that you might be doing after dinner. So what what could actually happen with leptin is that if we're eating uh, kind of eating poorly, not eating the healthiest diet, mostly fast foods and kind of ultra processed foods, which have definitely been shown to be problematic. Um, you know, the, the leptin is a hormone that is secreted by white adipose tissue. Um, in, and, you know, uh, the it, it's intended to to serve a function. But when we are not eating to help the function of this hormone, it starts to malfunction, so to speak. And what happens is it doesn't remind us to stop eating. At the end of dinner, you sort of feel, well, I actually need a little bit more dinner. And it, this starts to become a pattern. And that when that's when leptin resistance can develop. Now, leptin is also related to metabolism. And it turns out that the hotbeds for anxiety, the amygdala and hippocampus in the brain, are also related to metabolism in the brain. And that's when it starts to fill in this picture that if you have leptin resistance or your metabolism is off, um, and by the way, 93% of Americans have some form of metabolic problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a lot of us who are anxious. And um, the... It, it, it essentially is trying to draw this combination between if you're eating poorly, you're going to set off your leptin in the wrong direction. If you continue along this path, you might develop leptin resistance. Your metabolism is going to offset and that's going to drive your anxiety. That's really what I was trying to convey with uh, describing this uh, hormone to people and mm -hmm. sharing it in the book. And you go a lot into metabolism and and diabetes and what we call, you know, metabolic syndrome and really sugar is, uh, you know, the, the evil and refined foods and all that stuff driving all sorts of problems, including diabetes, obesity, but anxiety, depression and, and so on. And and my listeners are very aware of that in our sort of mm -hmm. low glycemic yes. load type thinking. Mm -hmm. And I've always called tomato ketchup, it's just tomato flavored sugar, you know, <laughs> the idea that you're adding a lump of sugar into your savory it's meal. True. Is, is not a good thing. I was my my it's father true. was a dentist, the oldest dental practice in in the UK. It's dentist. Wow. I'm the first male Holford not to be a dentist. So we, <laughs> we were we were not allowed to want a ketchup. I think we had could have one Coca Cola a month or something like that. Yeah, because yeah. uh, he knew better. Yeah, he knew better. Yeah. Consequence, we have good teeth. But you know, sugar. All that is terribly important. But I want to ask about omega-3 because uh, in our, uh, one of my last guests, the wonderful Professor Michael Crawford, you know, he said seven-month-old babies need to be weaned onto salmon. You know, get them used mm. to eating fish. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely vital. Uh, you're, you're big on fish and particularly salmon, uh, which obviously mm -hmm. gives us omega-3. Does yeah. it give us enough omega-3? And I'm also thinking that a lot of our salmon is farmed. 
Um, mm-hmm. Do you get, you know, is there much difference in the farmed salmon, omega-3 and wild salmon? Uh, and do well, we really so, get enough yeah. optimal, optimal, you know, health? You know, I personally think that we, those of us who consume salmon, um, should be eating it maybe a few times a week. Mm. Wild salmon is generally better just because of the farming practices, but not everyone has access and it can be very uh, expensive. But the, to answer the question, I do believe that omega-3s can be both eaten and supplemented because mm. they have been shown to be powerful nutrients for the brain specifically, but also help with inflammation. And inflammation is an underlying driving factor for even mental health conditions now, like anxiety and depression. Um, my suggestion is always to supplement if needed, but also eat uh, mm. a couple of, a few servings of fish a week. When people are not eating fish or for some reason don't consume it, if they have a, a very strong feeling about not taking a supplement, then we have to switch to an algal oil supplement. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, Patrick, I'm not sure that we're getting enough of it. But what mm-hmm. I can say is we should be eating it consistently to build up those levels and really tweak our diet from the ultra-processed foods to more whole foods. And over time, what I noticed with my patients is that they're starting to feel better and it has to be one of the effects is that they're consuming more omega-3 fatty acids. And many people just don't know how to cook fish, you know, things True. like mackerel and uh, sardines and anchovies mm-hmm. and so on. Have you got some good That's recipes right. in your book that um, help people get into making delicious fish dishes? I actually have recipes that are flexible, so they can actually, they can be replaced with any protein of your choice. And in my first book, The Food Mood Connection, I have a, a couple of sardine snacks that actually, whether it's a sardine or maybe it's your your pickled herring or one of the others, you can, you can use it interchangeably. Because I agree, people often don't know how to cook them. But remember, they also come as a canned version. And those canned mm-hmm. versions can be very nutrient-dense for omega-3s. Mm-hmm. So finding a way to even make them into a quick, uh, like people have made, yeah, you know, they talk about tuna salad that has a lot of uh, store-bought mayonnaise in it. I'm not talking about that version, but taking, you know, the, the canned fish of some kind and making it into a fresh salad or adding it as a side to something else you're eating is actually a quick and easy way to do it. Yeah, I mean, your recipes are, are really lovely. I was, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to a sardine pate, which is terribly easy to make and really delicious. And I've served mm-hmm. it to many people who won't eat, you know, sardines or those fish. And it's so easy mm-hmm. to make. But I love your mm-hmm. recipes. They're very straightforward. They're very simple. Thank, thank and, you. You know, and people need to learn to cook. And I think also your, uh, you know, background from, uh, you know, the Indian culture, but you grew up in South Africa. Mm-hmm. You know how to use spices and herbs yes. and, and you know, and they're also really, really good for us. Just a very small point. You mentioned, um, you know, basically we're all no sugar and uh, you're very big on eating foods without added sugar. You mentioned erythritol, it's a sugar alcohol. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You didn't you did mention xylitol, which is xylose, a major sugar in, in berries. So is xylitol, right. you know, if you if you have to have something with a little bit of something in it, is that um, as good as erythritol? What's the story there? Yeah. I think that um, I know less. Um, I've done less research with xylitol because the thing, the reason that erythritol um, appealed to me is that so far, what it it hasn't had an impact on uh, insulin resistance and mm-hmm. metabolic 
effects. And that's why I tend to go with that. Also some newer uh, sugars, sugar substitutes like allulose that have some yeah. promising data. Um, so I think there are options for people, but I think whether it's xylitol, erythritol, allulose, stevia, whichever one you choose, yeah. just have it in moderation. What I'm not necessarily on board with, Patrick, is the sugar substitutes now make yeah, yeah. large bags of baking substitutes. So if someone's mm -hmm. baking, they think, well, let me put a whole bunch of stevia into my recipe instead of sugar. And um, I think that that is consuming way too much of, of the, um, I feel like those, the newer artificial sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners as they're called uh, in moderation is okay. Um, but remember that they can be disruptive to the gut. They can drive anxiety, mm -hmm. even stevia, and that's been shown in research. So try to be careful of how much you use and when you use it. Do you know the origin of xylos, how it became popular? Uh, no, but I'm excited it, to hear from you. Well, World War II, um, the Finnish people okay. were effectively oh. under siege and they took to the forests. And in order to survive, they um, they ate a lot of silver birch sap. And silver birch sap oh. is incredibly rich in xylose. And they okay. noticed something, um, which was their teeth very very healthy i mean normally in a condition of sort of semi-starvation you know one you get teeth problems but they didn't and what they found was that the xylose which when crystallizes xylitol it stops bacteria sticking to teeth so in finland every child is given on arrival at school a xylitol suite um, mm -hmm. to prevent dental cavities and as you say so i think that that was quite intriguing and as you say a, a friend of mine um, sends her daughter to school and she has one xylitol sweets to protect her teeth. Her rather <laughs> underlean friend um, went and nicked the bag of xylitol sweets, ate the whole lot, probably leptin resistant, and consequently got the shits. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Which my is goodness. Terribly embarrassing because too much of these, you know, affects okay. the gut. They get expected exactly. Is that so? It's got a kind of cutoff switch, so she'll probably never be doing that again. Oh my god! Now, gluten That's quite is, something it is. You talk about gluten, and what yeah. I like about your book is not like one thing that gluten is the devil and all the rest of it, but you do it, yeah, least, yeah, yeah, at least um, raise that. And um, yeah, what have you in your practice? Have you found some people who are very sensitive to gluten and it's definitely driven their depression or anxiety or anything? Yes. Um, and included in even in my first book, we discussed gluten in relation to anxiety, because often this is where I might do a short elimination of gluten. Um, Patrick, we also have a very big issue with the type of gluten farmed in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Books uh, done by my colleague, written by my colleague, Dr. and your colleague, Dr. Perlmutter, have actually outlined all of this in, in, type of, in the type of wheat that's grown, etc. So... I really want to preface this by saying that in, in the U.S., you know, sliced bread is just is not a great product. I, I don't like to demonize food because I know that some people have that's what they have access to. But I want them to understand that if they're having problems with mental health, they need to reconsider some of these options. Mm -hmm. um, artisanal sourdough is uses a firm, fermented or fermentation starter that actually lowers the sugar is a good choice if you want to consume gluten and bread. 
Um, but the way that it's consumed in the U.S. is often in pasta and just bread and often is problematic and can drive symptoms of anxiety. So tweaking the person's diet, helping them make healthier choices, and if the anxiety is still not permitting, and this has happened more than once, um, having a nomination of, say, two weeks of those products and seeing if that improves uh, becomes very powerful and helpful to them. So, yes, it can be a problem, but as with any other food, I try to make it accessible. I try to make the information accessible to people um, because, you know, if you, you're dealing with severely mentally um, ill individuals who say are living in residential treatment programs funded by the state, they don't have a choice over mm -hmm. the foods that they're getting. Um, they're getting, you know, sliced bread. So you talk a lot about inflammation and neuroinflammation and the foods that will generate that state of inflammation. It's linked to mental health. And years ago, I was uh, uh, introduced to a farmer in Montana, had 8,000 acres and had been given some ancient seeds. It was Khorasan. Uh, it's marketed as Kamut. And today yes. he's run, I think, 26 studies. And what's quite yes. extraordinary is that the modern wheat increases inflammation quite dramatically. Yes. Mm -hmm. this, this ancient wheat, uh, which is actually genetically um, simpler as well uh, mm. does the opposite it reduces inflammation it so seems. so i think you know we, we we tend to get very polarized and say gluten all wheat is bad all gluten is bad and so on uh, but there Correct. are obviously nuances there and it may not be just gluten but what we've actually done to food what we've done to food and how we farmed say wheat has impacted that but also um, Americans tend to think, uh, certainly I don't know what it's like in the UK, if we mention gluten, people think bread. But mm. there are other grains. We should be eating quinoa is gluten-free, um, you know, barley is seldom eaten. Um, things that we can, and ancient grains like kamut, um, things like millet. Now, I'm separating this out from the glycemic effects of it, but mm -hmm. eating these in moderation actually bring important nutrients like fiber to the gut microbiome. Mm. So I think balancing that up and not just taking out an entire food group becomes important but yeah. changing the amount on your plate becomes important and of course quinoa is very low glycemic index millet might be a little yes, bit higher and high protein yeah exactly so i, I love quinoa it's my sort of go-to uh, grain and of course it doesn't take so long to cook and unfortunately these days i i love brown rice as well but you know 40 minutes later in quinoa it's what is about 12 or something it's, isn't it it's faster and actually yeah. Because there's been so much of information coming out about oatmeal and oatmeal is marketed in the U.S. as a healthy breakfast and it's been shown to, you know, be problematic on CGMs, et cetera. I created a recipe in Calm Your Mind uh, with food for actually making a homemade porridge from quinoa. Mm. So it's actually, uh, it's really tasty and it's a good alternative that you can make from scratch um, and just eat at home. The next section in your book is all on uh, micronutrients. I'm, I've got very, very interested in B vitamins, largely because I've been able to study with the genius professor, David Smith, uh, emeritus mm -hmm. professor of pharmacology at Oxford. And I was reading his recent paper that homocysteine, uh, which mm -hmm. is a measure uh, uh, that mm -hmm. relates very much to B6, B12 and folate, is now linked to over 100 diseases, including dementia. I'm looking at a list now, Alzheimer's, yeah. Parkinson's disease, depression, bipolar, um, schizophrenia. <laughs> so really a lot of mental health problems, but not anxiety, actually. Yeah. 
not not it's mm. not uh, there's not mm. enough evidence in relation to anxiety do you do, do you measure things like homocysteine and uh, yeah what what's the role of b vitamins in the cons- in, in relation to anxiety oh. so b vitamins super important uh, no i don't measure homocysteine patrick but i'm really rethinking the tools we should be using given our mm. conversations but uh, B12, super important, B9, super important, B1, super important. But honestly, it would be hard for me to choose one B vitamin over another. I want people to use a supplement or be eating these in their food. Um, In terms of measures, I'm cautious with things that I'm sure your audience knows. You know, if you're plant-based, fully plant-based, you may want to talk to your doctor about supplementing vitamin B12. People often ignore um, vitamin B9 folate but research from decades ago shown that low folate is associated with a low mood. Mm. So these these become really important for us to be eating, whether it's your, your green salads, um, the greener the better, the more types of greens the better for biodiversity to your gut uh, becomes important. Can, can you tell me uh, if you how you advise checking homocysteine and how you use it? Because... I think I feel like you're an expert in that area. One of the things you're an expert in. Yeah. Well, no, I think homocysteine is is so critical because that I mean, you know, we all know that folate. Um, we don't really call it B nine here, but that's what B nine is. Folate, mm-hmm. folic acid mm-hmm. in pregnancy, gotta oh. have it. Why? Because yeah. it is methylation is a process happening a billion reactions every two seconds. Methylation turns genes on or off, so you can get genetic damage. That's what neural mm-hmm. tube defects uh, are ultimately all about. But it isn't just folate. It's folate, mm-hmm. B12, B6, and mm-hmm. so on. So the mm-hmm. question really is, are you doing methylation properly? And mm-hmm. the test for that is homocysteine. So mm-hmm. B12 is part of it, but it's not the whole thing. And then the big problem, which you may be aware of, is that actually the, the serum B12, which is the normal sort of routine test that's done mm-hmm. everywhere, uh, the reference range, if you live in Germany or Japan correctly, anything below 500 is considered insufficient. But in the US, mm-hmm. uh, the reference range, I believe, is anything below 200. And mm-hmm. in the UK, I think it's 180. So in other words, the reference range is wrong. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so the thing about a homocysteine test, which we do on a single pinprick, you know, it's not, it's like 50 right. bucks, um, is is that you know if the homocysteine is raised, you're not doing methylation. You don't know if it's B12 or B6 or folate, but you know that there is a problem in that area that, that needs resolution. And the biggest issue, especially with older people, is the malabsorption of B12, which is only in animal foods. So mm-hmm. I I totally agree with you. You know, folate, B9, eat veg, nuts, seeds, beans, lentils, you know, you will get it. But the problem with B12 uh, is that there's an awful lot of people who are deficient, but their diet is not deficient. And okay. uh, it's it's a it's a sort of malabsorption problem, which hasn't really been drilled down on properly. Uh, mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. if you're not absorbing it, which is to do with stomach secretions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so there's a lot of concern right now about um, PPIs, proton pump inhibitor antacids. Yes. Because they're inhibiting this B12 absorption. You, you're you're no longer in the range of you know RDA two microgram ten microgram because it seems if you're not absorbing you 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 actually have to supplement five hundred microgram which is like two hundred mm-hmm. times so so mm-hmm. that's the that's the issue how do you know and uh, it's it's a hard one to know you mm-hmm. know hence hence tests 
Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. The, the other area that is fascinating is vitamin C. And the guy who turned me on to a conversation I want to have with you here, specifically in relation to anxiety, was Professor Paul Marek, because he said vitamin mm-hmm. C is not a vitamin, it's a hormone. And um, it's actually stored in the adrenal glands. And uh, if you stimulate the adrenal glands, uh, ACTH from the brain, you get a release of vitamin C. And he, he turned me on to a very interesting study, uh, which will sort of bring us to the question here. There's a couple of fish, the Amazonian teleost fish or the Oscar fish, who don't make yeah. vitamin C and all others do. And uh, there was a study where they take a trout that makes vitamin C and a teleost fish who doesn't, and they stress them. I'm not quite sure how you stress a fish, but they stress them. Yeah. And um, they showed that the ones that make vitamin C produce way less cortisol, the stress hormone, um, than the ones who can't make vitamin C. So he said that basically it's a stress hormone and us primates, us apes, we've lost the ability to make vitamin C and therefore Mm. we are the stressed ape. We're sort of primed for going into a stress anxiety state. And he mentioned emergency as a product, but Mm -hmm. the idea is whenever stressed, he says, take vitamin C, up your vitamin C. So yes, what do you think about vitamin C in relation to anti-anxiety, stress, and all that sort of stuff? Do you think our need is is actually higher? I, I think that our need is high, and it's something that is frequently overlooked for one thing, I don't think people are consuming enough fruit. You often mm-hmm. get a source of citrus, um, you know, sort of different citrus uh, would be vitamin C. But the other cool thing that I like about vitamin uh, about vitamin C is that um, one of the things that is actually has been shown to be helpful for both mood and anxiety is extra dark natural chocolate. Mm-hmm. It's rich in magnesium, serotonin. It has fiber because of how it's made uh, from the cacao beans. But it's also the largest uh, plant-based uh, source of iron. And it turns out a very large percentage of women and children in the world are iron deficient. Um, and when iron deficient, that drives anxiety. But the cool thing about vitamin C is that it helps the absorption of the plant-based iron. Mm. And therefore, a good a, a good um, a good idea for people is if instead of that cake or pastry or biscuit that they're going to have, why not have you know a piece of extra dark natural chocolate that's not a candy bar and a piece of a mandarin or clementine, which is the citrus. It's just one way to start to tweak the diet in a better direction. So I think that vitamin C is extremely important also for immunity. It helps anxiety and it helps absorption of, of um, other nutrients. So just just one that we should be paying attention to. Well, I'm glad you mentioned both chocolate or cacao and also magnesium, because I'm actually sitting here with my afternoon sneaky treat. And what, what I've got is a lump of of uh, sort of ceremonial cacao that comes from Peru, uh, which mm-hmm. I put in a, a little bit of plant milk uh, with a lot of cinnamon and a lot of nutmeg and also a little sprinkle of chili. Uh, so mm-hmm. I basically had a hot chocolate, no sugar, lots of cacao and, uh-huh. and all these spices. And yeah, uh, it has that. It's quite nice. And it's, I'd quite like to I'd like to ask you about spices and herbs. Um, mm-hmm. Do you you know do you use them a lot in the cooking? Do you think they're really important and they can help to spice up our life and improve our resistance to stress and anxiety and all that kind of thing? So uh, from the scientific side, yes, they are rich in antioxidants and anti-inflammatory properties. 
um, things that we cook with in our kitchen are something that are overlooked in terms of helping our brain health and calming our mind. Uh, I do use spices all the time. I grew up uh, understanding and using them and they flavor food. And often people think that healthier options for food can't be delicious. And this is where spices can completely change the game. Some of my favorites are capsaicin from chili peppers, uh, turmeric with a pinch of black pepper, uh, turmeric, the curcumin in, in turmeric can be activated either by uh, cooking it in a healthy fat um, or uh, with the addition of peppermint from black pepper, um, which really activates the curcumin and makes it much more bioavailable. So one of the easy kitchen hacks I have is my bottle of turmeric. I always grind uh, a few rounds of black pepper into it, shake it up so it's always combined and I can use it when I'm cooking. It saves me a step. Um, I think that it's the underexplored, uh, uh, you know, part of our, our kitchen that we can lean into to really help our brain health and, it, and, and use a little bit every day. Use it in, uh, use different spices in different meals and incorporate herbs. You know, uh, these are, are, are very powerful. Things like mint, um, a mint tea can be very uplifting and calm you, but also just create a little bit more focus in how you're feeling. A bit of green tea is rich in EGCG and L-theanine, often a much better option than the buzzy, uh, very sugared coffee drink you might be looking for at three o'clock in the afternoon. But green tea will give you a little bit of a, a lift and help with focus and energy as well. A lot of, we always hear a lot about curcumin, but what about cumin itself? Yes, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite spices uh, comes in a seed form, uh, can be used in tempering different foods like a dal or lentil soup um, and cumin ground powder. It's an entirely different spice from curcumin, which is the active ingredient in turmeric. Um, it's definitely some anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties. And, you know, it's a tiny seed, so you don't use a lot of it in, say, a curry or other, even a stir fry. But it's valuable having these and adding these to your repertoire flavors. You have a lovely chapter on bioactives, and I wanted to ask you, I, I like the section on uh, ashwagandha, are there some uh, sort of herbal remedies as such, some bioactives that you, you do recommend to people who are experiencing anxiety? Are there some that are better than sure. others? Yeah. So ashwagandha surprisingly has been used in Ayurvedic culture for a very long time, but more recently there's been a good amount of evidence for anxiety. So uh, it's it's a very bitter herb, so I think that using a supplement is just easier for people, and I feel that it's one one can consider. Um, saffron, another great supplement. Now, saffron is great to cook with, expensive spice, but delicious, but we don't cook with much of it. The research studies have shown that supplemental saffron with much higher doses helps mood and anxiety. So there's another good one you can lean into. The other one that many Americans are deficient in is actually magnesium. Mm -hmm. So having, um, you know, having your blood test checked with your doctor, um, doing uh, an electrolyte panel, um, you know, there's obviously your doctor needs to know how to interpret the magnesium level and then looking to either eat foods rich in magnesium or consider supplement become important, especially for anxiety. And how much magnesium, uh, you know, would you 
generally recommend a supplement if somebody you know has anxiety I, i'm also going to ask you about you know the dose for ashwagandha because you know there's a lot of different uh, guidance out there sure so you know some of the things um we suggest for magnesium between 400 and 600 milligrams a day has worked but it has to be uh, almost a trial basis it depends on the supplement you're using um, working with your doctor. Magnesium in higher dose can be problematic. It can cause diarrhea, the runs, it can be, there can be a lot of stuff that goes wrong. And ashwagandha, approximately 500 milligrams a day. Um, these do vary depending on the actual supplement you're taking. Have the conversation with your uh, practitioner, the clinician you're working with, um, and you know make sure that you have some guidance. These are not things we should just be deciding on our own um uh, either so now that, that's definitely good. worth considering yeah now we had an extraordinary podcast from professor john reed uh, who's done mm -hmm. incredible work here in relation to antidepressants mm -hmm. and uh, what is really quite shocking is according to his uh, very very good surveys in the uk with a population of let's say 60 million uh, we have probably 3 million people who could arguably be said to be addicted in the sense that when they try to come off, they can't. They get terrible mm -hmm. withdrawal effects. They mm -hmm. get these flashes. And uh, there's, a, well, I would like to say a big movement, but there's a movement here to really address this whole issue of uh, of how to get people off antidepressants and probably not just encourage them to get on in the first place, but, uh, you know, use these nutritional approaches as first line, not like an afterthought. But my question for you um, is, do you think with the right diet alone, you can get people off antidepressants, also sleeping pills? I mean, or, or, or you must have people who get better and they're on antidepressants and they'd like to get off um, and it's difficult. So how do you help yes. people get to the point where they can be happy um, without antidepressants? First, you know, I think we've said this before, but for each person, it does vary what we're able to do. I've had a lot of success with being able to lower the dose um, of medications, either myself or working alongside a practitioner who's managing the medications while I do the nutritional interventions um, and work with the patient. Sometimes we're able to lower the dose to a much um so almost a maintenance dose that they use, but really have le been leaning into nutritional interventions and lifestyle choices that are improving their mood or calming their anxiety. Um, going back to the patient I mentioned right at the beginning, we were, we didn't need to raise the dose of his Prozac because mm -hmm. he wanted to lose weight. We worked on a very solid nutritional plan to help him and to incorporate healthier foods. Um, there are individuals in my practice who come to me who are otherwise functioning in the world, Patrick, and they're not so severely depressed they can't get out of bed or not so severely anxious that they cannot get onto a Zoom meeting, but they know something mm -hmm. is wrong. They're not feeling good. They are more worried and, and anxious about stuff than usual. And they are great uh, in a population of individuals who can use nutritional interventions alone. So you always have to assess the safety. Someone cannot be suicidal, homicidal, you know, psychotic uh, in, in the throes of a manic episode. If they're there, it's not if they are in that, it doesn't mean food can't help. 
but you first got to stabilize their condition, make sure they're safe, and then in- institute these interventions. But there are a large number of people who are just interested in, in, in nutritional and lifestyle interventions alone. And if they're functioning in the world okay, and that's a careful clinical assessment, these they do very well with nutritional interventions. Yeah, but we, they have we, to be consistent. Yeah, we interviewed Dr. Hyla Cass, another, you know, one of the nutritional psychiatrists, yes. uh, you know, formerly at, at UCLA. And she, yeah, she uses nearly always 5-HTP or tryptophan to help people um, get off uh, the antidepressants when she stabilized them with good diet, sometimes magnesium and so on. And it's always, uh, I was actually looking at some evidence that the, the antidepressants have taken for several years do deplete serotonin. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so I, I know here no doctors are taught how to get people off drugs, only right. on. <laughs> that's the that's problem. Right. That's right. And and I, I think that's that's the case that's the case here as well. But mm-hmm. that's where the food is medicine, uh nutritional psychiatry movement is really important. Yeah. And Ambien is the other big one. A lot of so many yes. people are on sleeping pills. But once they get their nutrition right, they're good. But it it seems to be a little tricky to get off as well. Any any tips? Well, food can be very powerful even with sleep. But one of the difficulties I've had even with my own patients is when they're on Ambien, it's very difficult for them to give it up. And that's why in the United States, Ambien is a carefully monitored prescription um, because it does have some tolerance and dependence involved. So more more challenging when they're on Ambien. I would much rather meet them before they get on a sleeping pill and work with them, even if it takes a while to adjust the microbiome, work on the inflammation, adjust the diet to get them to a point where they can sleep. But um, things that contain natural melatonin in food, if you consume eggs, they contain melatonin. Um, certain legumes contain it, you know, um, eating, uh, eating uh, one of my tricks was eating kind of an omelet for dinner with people paying attention to good sleep hygiene. These are things that people know, but you know, things like not shopping at night with bright lights in the supermarket or the store, um, shutting off your devices, all of that becomes important as part of lifestyle interventions to support, um, to support you know, improved, improved sleep. So we come to the end of our time together. It's been uh, fantastic and so enlightening. And we wish that all uh, psychiatrists n- spoke in the way that you do and empower people to really understand that our body and our mind you know, is a function of food. So thank you immensely. And uh, the book is Calm Your Mind with Food, Dr. Uma Nedu. And where can you get it? Or do we just say go to Amazon? Or do you have a website? <laughs> I do have a website. Thank you, Patrick. The cover is different in the US, uh, bright yellow in the UK, and uh, has the purple sprouting broccoli on the cover in the US. Same book. Uh, go to my website, umanaidumd.com. Um, check on, if you're UK-based, check on your local bookstores. I think Waterstones has has it on promotion, um, and uh, Amazon certainly has it. But check your local bookstore, check online um, if you want the U- UK version, and you can always get the versions that you want on my website, umanaidumd.com. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Patrick. I really appreciate your time. So this is our first podcast of 2024, and I want to wish you, Uma, and everyone listening, a very happy and healthy new year.